Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. First of all, when lights come on, the priests come out at night. So, you know, when they come on, it's time to shine. You're listening to the From the Pink Seats podcast, powered by the State of Louisville Network. Welcome in to the third part of the From the Pink Seats 2021 Louisville football season and review series. I am your host, Jacob Lane, joined, as always, by my very good friend, Matthew McGavick of the Louisville Report. And we've got a great episode. No freakies tonight. We're still recovering from them, though. We had uh, quite the after party, one would say. You know, the drinks were flowing. The celebration was happening. You had people saying the best award show they had ever heard in their entire lives. But, you know, Matt, we had to get back uh, to the microphones tonight to continue this series. Um, And if you listened last year. Uh, to the offseason season, uh, the offseason in review. You're familiar with how we did this kind of offense, defense, special teams, looking at each phase of the game because what do coaches say, Matt? What's the coach speak about each phase of the game? You got to what? All three phases matter. You got to have a complete game. You got to have a complete game. All three phases matter. We're going to start tonight with the uh, the sexiest of the three, the offense. We're going to look at three, uh, potentially four statistics in our new segment here that we're going to roll out as we look at the offense. Uh, three and out is what we'll call this. Uh, and then we're going to dive deeper into the offense, into the narratives and all the things that uh, are out there with Louisville football. Scott Satterfield with our good friend Mark Ennis of 93.9 The Bill hosts The Drive 3 to 6 Monday through Fridays on ESPN. Louisville, you are familiar with him and no need uh, for me to explain who that is to you. But uh, he's going to join us here later, as is Vincent Lococo, former Louisville football player. Uh, and of course, our, our co-host, our third co-host here on From the Pink Seeds podcast. So, Matt, without further ado, let's jump right into this. We call this three and out. Basically, what we're going to do here, Matt, is we're going to run through three, uh, potentially four, if we're feeling frisky and want to go for it on fourth down, uh, big statistics that 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 I believe, you believe, uh, kind of define the season, right? Right. And so about this last year, turnovers was the big offensive thing. We looked at the turnover rate, turnover stats, turnover yep. this, turnover that. What, in your opinion, is the kind of big bugaboo or the big – uh, you know, storyline narrative. What, what What is it about, about the offense that kind of sticks out to you from 2021? Uh, it would probably have to be at times the play calling, though there were a handful of games where the, the play calling selection did improve, but it was the situational play calling is what really stuck out for Louisville. That's exactly right. I think that the situational play calling was the big bugaboo for Louisville this year. The one thing that really kind of cost them in big moments, and we're going to dive into that. Uh, tonight as we look into that here on the first part of from the pink seats all right let's start first down number one statistics for this year uh, comes to us from the football outsiders if you're not familiar with football outsiders.com 
uh, one of the best kind of, I would say, analytical college football websites. Matt, you and I have run into this problem now two years in a row. There's not very many analytics college football sites out there like there is for basketball. Oh, no, not at all. And plus, the, you feel, I feel like you find these statistical websites a dime a dozen when it comes to the NFL and that. But <laughs> when it comes to the college game, I think the only the only real true resource is PFF. We have to shell out like 200 bucks a year for that. And I'm, I don't know about you, but I don't have that in my uh, in my state of Louisville uh, reserves there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely not room for that in the budget here. But let's let's start here with our first out of the night busted offensive drive rate uh what this is essentially uh is football outsiders ranks the percentage of offensive drives that gain zero or negative yard 2021 in the Louisville football season matt their busted offensive drive rate was 0.055 fifth in the country gain my thoughts <laughs> offensive the busted offensive drive rate so confusing i don't even understand the percentage of offensive drives that gain zero or negative yards. So you don't want those, right? You want to be up high because you don't want those plays. So essentially what this means is that Louisville was fifth in the country um, at being able to avoid these particular types of plays. Let me try and give my take on the explanation. Busted offensive drive rate, it calculates the amount of total drives on the year that either went absolutely nowhere or went backwards. Louisville's only had 5.5% of their drives go nowhere or go backwards, which was fifth in the country. That's basically the layman's way of explaining it. And honestly, I'm surprised in one regard and not another, because I mean, they, they put up uh, plenty of gaudy offensive numbers. I think they were 21st overall in 20 uh, in total offense and 446 yards per game. So, I mean, obviously you're not going to, you're only going to have a handful of drives. That don't go really anywhere, but in, in, in the same breath, I know we're talking about this a little bit more in depth at some point, their third down percentage wasn't all that great. In fact, it was only 40% on the year and it was 63rd in all of FBS. What that tells me is that, Louisville is solving one problem, but running into another. And what I mean is that it seems like in the, in the first two years or so under Satterfield, it was a little bit too big play centric. I mean, I, it sounds odd saying that, but like, it seems like Louisville got the majority of their yardage on huge plays, but there were drives more often than not where you'd have a first down run that either gets like stuff to the line of scrimmage or lose a couple. Then you have a passing down on sec on second down, like second and 12, something like that. And you, you might have a like a big a big game either through the air on the ground or on third down, but you, you, that might go for nothing. And there you go, busted drive. What that tells me is that Louisville is eliminating that problem, and they're starting to stay on track and move the sticks. But once they get to that third down, they're having trouble at that point. And I know we're about to get into that at second down. I'll let you take over. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for saving me there because I feel like the football <laughs> people who are listening to this are like, my God, who is this guy? Does he even know what he's talking about? I, I literally have been looking at this stuff all day. And while you may have a point that I don't necessarily am great at explaining that, Matt, you did a fantastic job. And what I was trying to get at is that this is a stat that Louisville, uh, and like you said, surprisingly was really good at. Like this was an area where um, you know, if you remember last season, we talked about how I forget what the statistic was. I, I could probably pull it up here while we're 
doing the show from last year, but um, Louisville's tendency was to go backwards on first and second down. I mean, that's what they did. They always yeah. did that. And we were so frustrated playing at second and 13, second and 14, or even second nine, second and 10. Um, and this year, it's it, like you said, it's the opposite. They couldn't convert on third down. And I think that's where you saw some of the frustration with some of the, the transfers in particular, Aiden Robbins. And I, I'm not going to go into whether Aiden Robbins should be playing big snaps at Louisville football or not. But what I'm saying is in these situations where it was short yardage and Louisville simply couldn't get over the hump, they weren't creative enough with their play calling. They didn't kind of stretch themselves with the ability to go to multiple people. It, it, in fact, it was majority of Malik Cunningham and Jalen Mitchell. I would say 90% of third down plays were Malik Cunningham, Jalen Mitchell, especially when they're running the football um, and right. fourth down as well. We're going to get into the situational side of this here in a second. But this is a really encouraging thing because it means that one, one, one group really got going in 2021. Do you know who that is? Who would you say really kind of spurred this statistic forward? Hmm. I would say the running backs. That's a good one. That's a good one. But no, the offensive line is who I'm going to go with. Louisville got that pushed. Is, that is true. That is true. Louisville really, you know, finally kind of got leverage. I mean, in 2019, you had Makai Becton and Tyler Haycraft who were just really, really good at what they did. And, and Dwayne Ledford was a huge part of them being really physical. But Louisville struggled last year with being able to push and get get room, um, you know, off of the line of scrimmage and plays. And it showed with, like we talked about, losing yards on, on plays where it was obvious running plays or uh, on third downs getting sacked because it's obvious passing plays. This year, that wasn't the case. That wasn't so much. We know that we can blitz all out on third down because you're, you know, in third and long. No, in fact, Louisville uh, found themselves more times in third and short type of situations, maybe not third and one or third and two, but third and five, third and six, medium play type of third downs. Um, and they just couldn't make the plays when they needed to. And, and it forced a lot of punts. And, and they went forward a lot on fourth down, which, again, we're going to get into here in a second. Uh, mm -hmm. But the offensive line gave them a lot of push this year. Okay, second down. Situational play calling for Louisville was an absolutely uh, atrocious part of their offense, particularly in the goal line and the fourth down play calling. Now, you mentioned third down. Uh, give me the statistic again on their third down conversion rates. They were 40% on the year, which was 63rd in the nation. Okay. All right. So that's very interesting. So 63rd in the nation at being able to get off of the field in third down. Now we know that um, another kind of issue with this is, is that they, in, uh, you know, there wasn't an opportunity for more field goals or, or more points on the board because they struggled with field position. A lot of the times with punting um, with kickoffs. Now I know a lot of the times it's, it's fair catches. You bring the ball out on the 25, but again, all these things are kind of small things that add up when you look at them at a bigger uh, kind of, a, a bigger look so this year when it comes to goal line play calling and fourth down play calling this is where my eyes were drawn um and and there is no statistics for this matthew this is straight from the book of jacob right here okay <laughs> this is jacob hand counting plays in the goal line uh and hand counting a lot of the fourth down play calling now i want to say this is an imperfect science okay i went through all 13 games every single uh box score every single play-by-play -play, looking for fourth down plays um, that had an offensive play call, not a punt, um, and then goal line play calling, where Louisville found themselves on the goal line with the ability to score. Now, the goal line is a little bit tricky from box score to box score, depending on penalties, uh, where where they the, the ball is placed, things like that. For instance, I saw several times in ESPN statistics were first and 10 from the 10-yard line, sometimes goal line, sometimes not. Sometimes it, it can just be kind of – 
kind of tricky see, with what you see. J- Jacob, now you know my pain last year when I was trying to figure out the field position stacks. That's what I had to do for every single game is go through the game logs and chart that by hand. It was a pain in the ass. Okay, it, you're exactly <laughs> right. But it, 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 the fruits of the labor here are absolutely worth it. Okay. Oh, yeah. So let's start with the goal line play, Colin. That's one thing that I really uh, was was really interested to hear from Vince throughout the season, talk about the struggles with the goal line, kind of the lack of creativity. Um, for instance, the, the the Clemson play. He talked a lot about that, right? About running the play that is not even, that's, you know, kind of known for being Clemson's play to try to win the game there. I think either on third or fourth down and it didn't work. Um, throughout the year, they had plenty of opportunities uh, from the, goal line okay in fact Mm -hmm. they had 40 total goal line plays according to espn box scores okay that seems low but if you think about it louisville scored on a lot of big plays this year a lot of plays outside of the red zone even um Mm -hmm. i don't i don't have the red zone you sent the red zone statistics earlier which might be worth kind of um rehashing here here in a second once we get through this but um essentially 40 goal line plays this year 33 of them were runs seven passes now again these statistics can be kind of muddied because there were two or three sacks and in in that play um espn considers it a sack but is it a passing play or was it really a running play it's kind of you know kind of hard to tell um so that means that they ran the ball 33 times i'm not good at math so somebody would want to tell me what the percentage of that is but of those 33 runs they did they did score a lot okay 13 touchdowns on those uh, that was a, a 30, 39% conversion rate. Not bad. Not great. Not bad. A lot of runs, a lot of stops on, on those runs, obviously. Right. Um, but out of those seven passes, Matt, this is what's really interesting. Four of them were touchdowns. That's 57% conversion rate there on the goal line. Why do you think, in your opinion, the play calling is so um, hot or cold? I'm not even sure how what to – I mean, it's just so one-sided. It's so run-heavy on the goal line. And, and I get you have a big power back, but what is it that you can be able to push all the way down the field and then when you have one, room, one yard to go, you're not able to, to, to score? Yeah, that part's a little bit difficult to answer, but I, I, I'm not really over, overly shocked to see all the runs on the goal line because, I mean, like, whenever you're, like, one, two yards away, I mean, traditionally, what are you going to try and do? You're going to try and run the ball straight up the middle or dial up some sort of run because it's just right there. Because I know with passing, you only have a limited amount of space to work with because, I mean, because when you're down outside, when you're outside the red zone, you have basically the entire field to work with. I mean, when you're in the red zone, when you're not not in the red zone, on the goal line, you just have really the end zone to work with, and that's it. Not, not a lot of room for receivers to run routes, not a lot of routes available to begin with, period. A lot of people running into each other, so I think that's why you don't see, like, no matter what scheme you run, no matter what personnel you have, no matter what head coach, OC, position coach, whatever, you're not going to see a ton of passes in the red, like on the goal line, just because there's not that much room. I mean, it's not unheard of. I mean, especially in this modern era of football, where it's just pass, 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 run, pass, 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 pass. A lot of teams and programs are are more apt to pass it. But I think given Satterfield's MO is run first, I'm not totally shocked to see that it's so like obtuse to running the ball. Now, to your point, 57% conversion rate with the seven passes, four touchdowns. I do think, 
yes, it is bigger than it's a bigger percentage than the runs, but it is a much smaller sample size. It's like less than a fourth of the sample size of the runs. Right. I'm sure like when you add more passes to that mix, the the success rate is probably going to go down a little bit. But I mean, you you can't ignore what you do have on hand. I mean, you have seven passes and and only three of them didn't go for touchdowns. You have more, you have more passes that didn't go for touchdowns. No, no, let me rephrase that. You had more passes go for touchdowns than passes that didn't on the goal line. So it's a little bit interesting to see why Louisville didn't opt to pass it maybe a little bit more, trying to switch things up a little bit. And maybe that's what Lance Taylor is going to help out with, the new offensive coordinator over from Notre Dame. He said that while he's not going to be the play caller, he's going to want to try and enhance the offense and multiple ways and then situational play calling is something that he brought up specifically goal line, fourth down, third down, you know, areas like this where Louisville does need some improvement. Yeah. They definitely need an extra set of eyes. Now I want to give you a little bit of a troubling statistic here. I've been, I've been full of, of positive so far. Well, I guess I don't really know how you take the fourth down play calling as positive, but Marshawn (laughs) Ford in 2019 caught seven touchdowns. Um, I would say at least five of those came on the somewhere between the five and the one yard line. Okay. That's a, that, yeah. that's a, that's a very, very low estimate. Okay. And 2020, even with that shoulder injury, he caught six touchdowns. Now he had a lot more down the foot, uh, down the field play calls for him, uh, a lot more opportunities, but again, Louisville was so good at that kind of bootleg rollout, Marshawn Ford, one yard touchdown. I mean, how many times have we yeah. seen that in 2019 in 2021, he had two touchdowns. Um, and, and yet he still led the team in receiving. Uh, I don't remember actually if he, he ended up at the top, but he was one or two. Um, he was up there for a while as the leading receiver for the team. He finished with 550 total yards, 49 receptions. Um, and his uh, lowest um, average per, per play of his career here this year at 11.2, which is a little bit surprising. But Louisville was so good in 2019 and 2020 at being able to put the ball in Marshawn Ford's hands. And I don't know if defense has just caught on to that play or if, the limitation at the other tight end position and some of the other places on the field uh, really caused them to kind of go away from that. I think that in 2022, they need to get back to some more of that, even if it's not Marshawn Ford. Right. Um, and I think there's, there's, I agree with you that passing on the goal line is not always your best, your best place because you're really smushed in a small area and it's really easy to kind of all out blitz without worry of getting beat over the top. But still, there's all kinds of, you know, legal rubs, legal picks, um, the ability to kind of run those bootlegs, those short play action plays to the tight ends in the back corner. Obviously, you have fade routes that you can hit if you have a receiver like a Justin Marshall who can go up and make plays. There was there was more, uh, you know, kind of options that you would expect Scott Satterfield to rely on. And instead, he really kind of zeroed in on Jalen Mitchell and Malik Cunningham. It's obvious to tell why he did with Malik Cunningham. OK, here's the other element of this, Matt. Uh, we talked about the goal line. How about fourth down play calling in, in 2021? Uh, they ranked 66 nationally in fourth down conversion rate. Okay. And they had 27 mm-hmm. total attempts, 14 conversions. It's not, not terrible. It's, you know, it's somewhere in the middle. So you, you're, you're fairly mediocre. Uh, the problem was not enough other areas that were really good here. So uh, in this, in this particular play calling situation, we see a little bit of history repeat itself um, of those total play calls. 19 of them were runs and eight of them were passes. Of those 19 runs, um, nine or of those 19 runs, nine were converted for first downs. Okay, so that's 0.47 percent conversion rate. Again, not terrible. No. Um, from the passing 
element of it though. Again, 19 runs to eight passes. So they doubled up what they did on fourth down running the football versus passing the football. Okay. They had five conversions when they passed the football. So five out of eight, they had a 0.63% conversion rate on fourth down when passing the ball. So again, we see this big disparity. Um, this that's not the right word. What, what's the word? Uh, uh, discrepancy. I just made up a word on the fly. That's all right. That's what we do here. Um, a big discrepancy. And, and again, very run heavy, which I, when you have a, a guy like Scott Satterfield, you expect, but it seems that when you know that teams are expecting this, Matt, that the difference is being able to do something else good enough to still win. And I, I think a, a part of this too, is that for, about half the season, we didn't truly know like what we were going to get out of the wide receiver room. It wasn't until maybe a couple games in the ACC play that the wide receiver room was really starting to get some cohesion. And even once ACC play started, it took a, a couple extra games because Braden Smith went out. So like that changed the dynamic of the wide receiver room completely. I mean, he was he was your number one guy, and then all of a sudden, like guys behind him are having to step up, and it was already a room where we kind of viewed of heading into the season, like who's going to be the, become the go-to guy. And now the guy who we thought was going to become the, the go-to guy goes down. So I think that kind of, I don't want to say necessarily limits what you can do passing wise, but it, it makes the coaching staff maybe not want to opt for a passing play in some of these pressure situations, not knowing what you could get or like, if I, I I think what their mindset was, there was a more you got a more consistent product out of running the ball than maybe than more so maybe passing it in the beginning of the year. So I think that probably skews it a little bit, at least in the beginning of the year, and with the coach's mindset. I expect this to go up a little bit next year. We have a little bit more knowledge as to what the wide receiver room is going to look like. There's going to be there's guys coming in. There's going to be some returners. It's going to be, a, for lack of a better way to phrase it, it's going to be a healthier mix of wide receivers in the wide receiver room. There's not going to be as much question. We we know what we're getting out of Braden Smith, Tyler Harrell, and Amari Huckins roots look the part. D. Wiggins, he's a little bit of a wild card, but he's shown in the past what he can do when he was coming in Miami. And then there's a handful of of young guys coming in, and, and Lord knows what they could do as freshmen. I mean, Devon Mortimer, based on his film, looks like a stud. And then a guy like Chris Bell, maybe he could make some noise as well, or even a guy like Chance Morrow. Yeah, and another player you you didn't mention there, one that we haven't gotten the opportunity to really talk about since we've been in this postseason recap is Tyler Hudson from um, oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, from Central Arkansas, who was a, a, a big-time wide receiver and a guy who made – you got mossed on Monday Night Countdown because of his ability to go up and get the football in the air. Um, and if Malik Cunningham is going to kind of take that next step as a quarterback, you have to be able to be a situational really good quarterback. You have to be able to make plays over the middle of the field um, you have to be able to fit the ball into tight windows when you're playing on the goal line. You have to be able to to kind of make those really tough throws, those far sideline throws when the middle of the field is covered. Um, and Malik is slowly, slowly showing this evolving um, ability as a quarterback to make smart throws and make the right throw, make a good throw. Now, his accuracy still has work to, to be done, but. I think that the next one of the next evolutions for him is in these goal line situations um, as Scott Satterfield hopefully is influenced by Lance Taylor, Gunnar Brewer, a little bit more. Jack McNeil has a little bit more comfort in some of these receivers. He can trust Malik to throw some of those back shoulder throws to the end zone, those fade routes, some of those 
that, like I said, some of those creative kind of flips that you see with Patrick Mahomes and, and the chiefs, like he with Jarek McKinnon uh, in the playoff game the other night. Um, there's just so many different things that you can do with creativity on the goal line. If you're comfortable with what you have and the pieces you have. And I think year four, this is the year where you expect Scott Satterfield to kind of play all of his cards and down. And now we have third down, our third and maybe final stat, depends on how quickly they go through this. But over the first two years of the Scott Setterfield era, I mean, through all its ups and downs, something we weren't really truly accustomed to was seeing an abhorrent amount of penalties. We couldn't really say that this season. And we, we, saw, we did see a slightly noticeable uptick in penalties, particularly in just egregious situations i think the first one that comes to mind is the i think it was the nc state game where they were on the goal line and then someone got called for a false start is that am, am i on the right track there jacob yeah, is that, yes yes yeah, there okay. was several plays in the clemson game um obviously uh the kentucky game there were some penalties i mean it feels like we're so far removed from the season at this point to like kind of call out specifics but there were multiple times where you had, I mean, I remember, remember the face mask, the blocking face mask on Adonis Boone. I mean, there was just things I'd never seen. This oh yeah. The, the do face, penalty wise, the face mask after the, the play was called dead. I've never yeah, at any level like, of football. I've never seen that. I never even, I didn't even know that's a thing. Never even heard of it. It, it probably isn't a thing in that ref just wanted to call anyways, but I digress. Yeah, but anyways, but this year, Louisville saw much more penalties, were subject to much more penalties, and as you can imagine, put them behind the behind the eight ball a couple times. They were 74th in the country this season at the FBS level in, in fewest penalty yards per game. They averaged 55.3 penalty yards a game, which I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you put it in the context of a football game, I mean – Depending on like what opponent you're going up against, I mean those you those 55 yards could could come in handy at some point. And they were 70th in the in the nation and average penalties a game at 6.2. I mean, considering we were used to maybe seeing four it four maybe five a game to see an increase up to this level, it's it's a little bit jarring and it makes me wonder like why why this team was so. So uh, suspect to, to penalties, and there were a, a couple games where penalties just started to pile up. There were, I know the NC State game, the Clemson game were, were instances where they had like seven, eight, nine penalties in a single game, and that's not something we were particularly used to under the first two years of Scott Southfield. Yeah, you're definitely right. I'm going to give you a stat here um, that's going to blow your mind. Okay, if oh, no. Louisville's offensive penalties were a running back. They would be Louisville's third leading rusher. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, Jesus. how is that for a statistic? They would be Louisville's third leading rusher um, in terms of yards per game, not total yards on the season, but yards per game. <laughs> they would average just behind Jalen Mitchell uh, uh, in terms of Jeez. yardage. But it's just, um, yeah, man, it's just you uh, again. What the point of this is not to. Um, you know, try to pat Louisville on the back, try to try to, you know, beat them down with bad statistics. It is literally to show you how close or well, not really how close, but how th these these things that you don't really think about played such a large role in the record that Louisville finished with to give up that many penalty yards per game. Now, I know that's obviously offense and defense, but to give up that many, I mean, that's that's a that's a possession right there, mm -hmm. essentially a game that yep. you're giving up. 
Um, and it costs them so many times that you could literally say, yeah, you don't, you don't commit those penalties. You're never in that situation. You win that game. And we, we really, you know, poked fun at Scott Satterfield throughout the year for saying how close they were, but my God, Matt, he's not wrong, man. He's not wrong. And these statistics show it. Yeah, no, he's absolutely not wrong. I know fans, I get it. They're not going to want to hear we're this close. We're this close. We're this close. We're this close. But it, it seems like with each offseason under Satterfield, the things that he needs to clean up become a lot more, a lot easier to clean up and a lot easier to correct. Because I know last offseason there was the turnovers, and those can be correctable, but it, it takes work to kind of sort of break habits on both sides of the ball and just, you know, putting yourself in a better position to not make turnovers happen. At least this season, like penalties, penalties, that's that's a coaching thing. I'm, that can be coached out. I mean, this wasn't a huge issue the first few years. I would hope it's not a, a huge issue in year four. The the bus offensive drive thing, I mean, I as long as penalties don't become a thing and turnovers don't like go through the roof again, I expect that to, to kind of like maintain. And the situational play calling, I truly think that's going to get better. I think Louisville – Louisville's offense as a whole is not only going to be better, is going from like a roster standpoint, is going to be better. I know they're losing some guys like, you know, Cole Bentley, Jordan Watkins, Justin Marshall, Hassan Hall, a few guys here and there. But when you take into account one, the returners, well, mainly the returners, honestly, and then there's some guys coming back that are plugging holes at each of the offensive skill position spots. I think the products that Louisville can put on the field from an offensive standpoint will be better in 2022. And so that it will help Louisville close the gap in some of these close losses. I think, I truly think that now I'll have to make a deeper dive into the season, into this upcoming season. Once it gets, you know, farther into the offseason. I mean, I'm still drowning in Chris Max up with basketball stuff, but I digress. I truly think that a lot of these really, close outcomes that Louisville finds himself on the wrong end of will be able to get flipped in 2022. Yeah, I do too. And I, I think that we have, you know, I know they took some steps back in 2021, but they took a lot of steps forward from where they were in 2020, uh, 2020. So your hope is in that year four, the reasoning behind giving Satterfield another year is knowing all of these things and being able to take this data and spit out the fact that, yes, one more year, you can prove and really hold up to the light whether he's a good enough coach because these numbers are going to continue to either get better or get worse. And if they get better, Louisville is going to win some football games, right, Matt? Right, especially with – I think we can all agree, even the schedule – while the actual, like, what dates the games are coming on isn't coming out until next week, we know who Louisville is going to play. And I think we can both agree that the schedule in totality is going to be a little bit easier next year, especially with the non-conference slate. Yeah, I think that there's a chance for that. The ACC is going to be good at the top again. Clemson's going to be better. Wake Forest is going to be really good next year. Um, NC State's got a lot of players back. Florida State has got another year to kind of get, you know, things uh, reloaded down there. I know they've had some transfer for issues but still uh, and then obviously you have you know miami north carolina some of those other programs that Florida the opportunity State transfer is, issues oh no yeah <laughs> so all those people who say scott satterfield can't keep players here at mass exodus i don't see those fingers being pointed the other way but i digress <laughs> like you said all right matt what do we want to do, do we want to go for it on fourth down or we want to punt it what do we want to do here go for it on fourth do it all right let's do it on fourth down
We pick to go for it on fourth down, and we're going to throw out a stat that will make you happy. Okay, how about that? We saved the best for last. Not really the best for last, but I threw this in here because of last season. And again, we've talked about it enough tonight that you remember um, and you feel like you're in deja vu all over again, talking about the turnover situation. Um, last year, turnovers were really, really bad. Malik Cunningham struggled with turnovers. Hassan Hall struggled with fumbles. They struggled with being able to get turnovers on the defensive side of things. They just made a lot of boneheaded plays in 2020. In 2021, they improved significantly. Their turnover rate um, which is measured by football uh, by the football outsiders is the turn. The turnover rate is the, per, the percentage of offensive drives that end with an interception or fumble. So essentially how many of your drives ended in a fumble or a turnover big narrative in 2020, the improvement was vast in 2019, Matt, they were 124th in the country. They jumped all the way up to 21st nationally in turnovers lost this year. They were 27th in the country and that turnover rate. How about that? We made it all this way for me to tell you that Louisville's offense they did their job and not turning the football over. Now, I know you, you think of plays like the Hassan, Humble, Hassan Hall fumble on the one-yard line, the Amari Huggins-Bruce fumble on the one-yard line. Um, I know there's some, some other plays in there, some interceptions that really hurt, but my God, man, they really, really improved on the turnover side of things as an offense. Oh, yeah, it's huge. I, I mean, I don't have the exact stat in front of me, but I, I remember when we were talking about this issue uh, this time last year, the turnover rate was like somewhere in the 20 percent, like 21, 22 percent. Like, that's huge. I mean, their their touchdown rate was like a little bit north of 50, but then like on ev almost every other drive, they were coughing it up. So they were like the epitome of boomer bust. I mean, they took their turnover rate from somewhere in the 20s all the way down to 7.9 percent. And according to football outsiders, that was 27th in the country. So I know a, a lot was made over over the offseason of what are they going to do to fix turnovers? Is Malik, Cunningham, is Malik Cunningham going to be able to make smarter decisions? Are the running backs going to be able to hold on the football? Is the defense going to be able to create more turnovers? Is the turnover circuit they're creating for both sides of the ball going to work? And Jacob, I think we got our answer. <laughs> Yeah, they definitely improved. And again, this is another statistic that should give you some hope about getting into 2022 and really seeing things start clicking and that offense being able to get back to where it was in 2019 and, and even better, in my opinion. I think Malik Cunningham is a huge part of this, um, learning not when to force throws, not to try to be the hero. Um, I, I, I think that we, we kind of expected him to improve in being able to bring that number down. But in my opinion, it's how he did it. It's not necessarily that he threw uh, more accurately or that he uh, really changed his throwing mechanics or anything like that. It's just he became smarter with being able to run the football and being able to make big plays to the tune of, of finishing first in the country and rushing touchdowns by a quarterback and, and at the top of the country and, and regardless of position and rushing touchdowns. So um, this is a, a really, a really a, a big area for Louisville where you feel like Scott Tatterfield kind of has a grip on things. And now it's all about how do you improve next season with more weapons and, and you subtract a couple of guys, I'm not going to name any names, um, but you think that they're going to probably even take another step in this next year um, to maybe Malik getting back to some of the interception numbers he had in 2019. Yeah. I mean, I honestly could see a situation where Malik Cunningham not only combines his rushing ability from 2021, but couples that in with his um, efficiency marks from 2019 kind of have the best of both worlds there because he's slowly trending towards that. He showed, he showed this year that he can both run the ball and makes and make smart decisions running it and just going through his progressions and reads and whatnot. He's not 
a hundred percent there yet, mainly with kind of the accuracy part and missing a few wide open throws here or there that would have completely changed the outcome of a couple games. But I've said it a couple of times on this show in the last like few weeks, month or so. I truly think if if the if the cards are played just right, Malik Cunningham will end up in New York. Whether or not he actually wins the Heisman is another it's another question entirely. But I think everything is setting up perfectly for him to become a Heisman Trophy finalist. I I think so too. And assuming that he can improve in some of those areas we talked about, not even just turnovers, being able to make better decisions on the goal line as a passer, being able to get more accurate with some of those deep balls that floated over the head of Tyler Harrell that would have been 60, 70, 80, 90 yard touchdowns that probably would have put him in New York had he converted just a few more of those, really. Um, you see him improve on that next year, and there's a, there's a potential for some special things, and potentially, you know, it, for him, maybe being a high draft pick. Now, I'm not saying he's going to have a Malik Willis type of year um, as a dual threat passer. I'm not even saying that he's going to see the jump that Kenny Pickett did from a stock perspective, but he could be a, a third, fourth round guy that teams see as, hey, he needs a few years of polish, um, of learning the NFL offense of learning how to be an NFL quarterback. But we see kind of what we saw on Lamar Jackson, just not to the same degree of really, really raw talent and a guy whose legs give you just this new dynamic in your offense. Um, and, and he's not shabby passer. I mean, that guy's got an arm and, and the, the efficiency statistics you talk about, especially in 2019, the, the pockets passing statistics are really impressive. They really are. And you never know, maybe he could go full blown Kenny Pickett and elevate himself into first round status now I, I don't think he'll quite elevate himself into like top half of the first round maybe the back end of, of, of being a day one selection it, it's it's very much possible it, it very much is possible and uh, we've got a good long amount of time here over the offseason to talk about it more at uh, ad nauseum one might say um, <laughs> I, I'm sure we're gonna have some takes this offseason Matt's already got his Heisman take I think Malik could be a second third round quarterback I guess that's my Malik take there's the guy that is always in our mentions telling us we need to stop praising Malik Cunningham so that's his take everybody's <laughs> got to take on Malik Cunningham um, but you know, one reason why you give Scott Satterfield another year, even without that kind of, uh, you know, star quarterback in his back pocket from a recruiting standpoint for now, um, is that you have Malik Cunningham and Malik Cunningham was not what he is now when he got here. Um, and that is, you know, a lot of that is, is the tutelage of Pete Thomas and Scott Satterfield. And, uh, you know, I know he's not here anymore, but Frank Ponce and, um, you, you think that with another big offseason, some improved weapons, because I think the receiver room might be a little bit better, Matt. I'm not going to lie to you. It's definitely it's definitely got an, a chance of being better. Um, you've got a lot more guys who can do a lot more things. Maybe a special season in store for Malik Cunningham. Maybe get to New York type of deal. All right, let's go ahead and step aside here, take a quick break. Uh, and then when we come back in, we're going to welcome Vincent Lococo, our third host of this show. He's going to join us as we sit down with Mark Ennis of 93.9 DeVille. Uh, the postgame show for Louisville football to talk about the offense and what he saw on the field this past season. Stick around. You. Yeah, you. Enjoying this podcast? Like sharing Louisville events and news with like-minded individuals? Love being a part of the Louisville community? This podcast is part of a first-of-its-kind podcast network at thestateofwilville.com. With daily news and opinions, seven podcasts, webcasts, and more, the State of Louisville is your home for anything and everything Louisville. Check them out at stateofglobal.com today.
welcome in the host of The Drive on 93.9 The Ville, a man who bore the brunt of Cardinal fans' pain this year on the post-game shows, had a, a ton of memorable moments, I'd say. Mark Ennis, welcome in the Front of the Pink Seats. Have you recovered yet from your post-game trauma this year? Yeah, this this wasn't the bad year for that. Like, it, it, In fact, I kind of felt ready for this. Like, bad years, 2018, that was bad. You know, starting post-game shows in the third quarter. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. That, that was bad. Uh, you want to know something though, like of all the years, all the games, and I don't know what it was, the worst postgame show ever, 2017 Boston College. AJ Dillon destroys. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, who was it? Chucky. Uh, Chucky Williams. Chucky yeah. Williams. Yeah. And, you know, Lamar, and they lose that game. That show, that postgame show went like two hours and 40 minutes. We took like 70 calls. It was the craziest thing ever. I don't know. Oh, my God. Of all the postgame shows ever, that was the one. That people were just like to hell with this. So this year was cake. That's interesting. I'm going to give you a little bit of a fun fact. That was the first game I ever covered in the press box. So you can blame me if you want for that. That was the first <laughs> time I ever got to cover a local football game. I've been looking 2017. For yeah, there, there you go. Well, you can put that on me, man. So uh, you know, hey, well, I'm glad it wasn't too bad. I know that this year it was more so people calling in saying, "I'm tired of the play calling fourth down. They're not winning games on big moments." It was more of just kind of venting frustration than them um, saying, "I'm quitting." Well, I guess it was a little bit of quitting global football. Uh, well, yeah. let's. Let's jump right into it, man. Um, how do you think Scott Satterfield's feeling right now? I think Scott Satterfield's like, every day is great. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is. It is really, actually, I don't know what it is. It's really funny. Uh, I think, was it two days ago when they announced there's going to be like a board meeting the next day? And then like, yeah. like I don't know, 10 minutes later, there was a, a, a video that came out with Souders in it. And I was just like, like, Scott can't do anything wrong. Like, <laughs> they're lose, like the bat, like he, the basketball team loses, and then he's like, oh, I hired Dion Branch. Like, every time we turn around, he did something that everyone's like, well, this is nice. We're, all, all, yeah. all, right, all right. Like, every time. So, no, I feel like he just sort of keeps hopping over kind of a low bar uh, compared to basketball. But he's living his best life right now. He's got to be, man. He's uh, He's been able to become the last one standing, I guess, out of him and Chris Mack. I don't think anybody really expected that. But you, you imagine the odds you could have gotten for Scott is, like, not only is still standing, but but – semi-popular and and vincent and chris don't even work here anymore <laughs> that's the I, that, I i think if we had talked about that a few months ago people would have thought we were taking drugs i mean it's just like a few months ago try eight I months mean, ago <laughs> three weeks ago, weeks ago. that's it's it's it, it seemed it seemed like satterfield was going to be the first one to go when in reality he's the last one standing <laughs> it's incredible man then now Solid, yeah, now. but you know what they no, say? No good guys do last year, but like solid right now, very solid. And they say good guys don't win, good guys finish last. That Scott Satterfield's breaking that narrative right there, man. Uh, but in all honesty, things looked you know kind of touch and go there for a while with Satterfield following the season before everything happened with Vince Tyree resigning and Neely. I mean, for Scott, it's just a matter of, of circumstance, he just got kind of lucky with the way things happen. Uh, but in your opinion, you think Louisville made the right choice retaining him for another year? Yes. And I would have done that, but I, the, I, you can call me cowardly or, or whatever, but in my position was if they had gotten to the end of the Kentucky game, we're just like, you know what, this isn't cutting it and, and decided they wanted to, to move on. It, I would have understood it, it felt justified. It would have been fine. But the fact that they didn't also felt fine. Like I felt like it was about as 50, 50 as you, how, if they really believed that he's not far away, 
you know, that, that you know, mar- you know, some just some some improvements on various margins, and this is an eight nine win team on kind of a regular basis, then then do what you've done. And they're like, no, we put both feet behind it. We're fine with it. You know, we're going to enhance these things, and it'll be better if you believe that. Then do it. And I, I will give them credit for at least like acting like they believe in him, but not not exactly how he's done it. Like clearly, some things are not okay, and they've got to get better. Uh, and then have gone about kind of addressing it. And I think he's had a nice postseason so far. Oh, yeah. Right after that Kentucky game, like you said, there were reasons to maybe retain him. There were reasons to get rid of him. And uh, in order to close that gap, trending and get more so towards retaining him for 2022, there had to be changes in some regard. There had to make be some sort of shakeup on the staff. There had to be some sort of additions. And that's exactly what Satterfield's done. They brought in Ben Souter, someone who has – I mean, quite frankly, I know Mike Seriano is a great guy, but he's got a better resume, frankly, than him. He brought in a guy who seems relatively accomplished in Wesley McGriff and has a good background. And then you bring in Dion Branch, who fans have been clamoring for someone, like some sort of former player or alum to come in. I know a lot of them, when Josh Hurd first said he wants to bring in a player development guy, kind of thought, okay, this, this seems like a position Taylor made for Eric Wood. But I think a lot of fans are happier with the fact that he went out and actually got Dion Branch instead. And then you bring in a guy like Lance Taylor, who has developed guys like both in the pros and in college at the pro level. You got DJ Moore, Curtis Samuel. But I think the more enticing one is that he developed two Heisman run ups at Stanford. I mean, I don't I don't think you can look at any one of these hires now and say, eh, I can see why this couldn't work. I think you kind of look at where he is now and say, okay, I, I can get on board for 2022 versus like in that week after the Kentucky game, everyone was ready to toss them off the second street bridge. I think the end, at the end of the Kentucky game, like the, the overarching feeling was like, you just basically tried to just transplant the way you did everything at App State here. Yeah. And like, there are, there are elements of it that totally work and they probably yeah. would work anywhere, but it's pretty obvious. Like some of this is not working and that, Every hire since then, either with Souders or McGriff or with Taylor uh, or, or the transfers, even as several of the transfers are, are all outside of his own coaching tree. They're not guys that he had as a GA at App State seven years ago or something like that. You know, the SEC program, and McGriff is like every SEC program. You know, Lance, <laughs> you know, Lance Taylor was at Notre Dame, you know, stuff like that. Like it was like outside of his own but then also attached to programs that were doing it the way you'd like to see Louisville do it. And so like, I think it was one addressing the fact that like, okay, I, I need to challenge myself a little bit. I'm going to go outside my circle. And the guy that was outside the circle last year, Big Nell had like the best year last year. Uh, and then oh, yeah. guys oh, yeah. that were attached to programs where you're like, okay, they'll have feedback. They'll have input. That's like, Hey, you know, we almost, we made the playoff like multiple times at Notre Dame. And then we did this sort of thing. That's good feedback. That's because I don't look. I think the core of Scott is like exactly what I really like and want Louisville to have. And we're talking about like fine tuning these these outer elements with with input from the outside. Some of it was good last year. It just needs to get better this year. I like what they've done so far. Oh, I do too. I, I mean, they talk about trying to cultivate a championship culture when you got to bring a guy in from Georgia who literally just won the national championship and bring in a guy from Taylor who Notre Dame obviously didn't win, but they went to college football playoff. I mean, these are the kind of guys you need to surround yourself with. Like you said, some of what Scott brings to the table with his G5 background works, but at the end of the day, at Louisville's P5 program, the P5 program. 
So kind of going back into what Jacob went and was talking about before we started recording uh, prior to bringing you on, we talked a little bit more specifically about the offense and some of the bigger metrics and stats and storylines. It kind of stood out to us a little bit. And, you know, we kind of talked about penalties, situational play calling the, how, how big, frankly, the offense was in, in making sure they're actually moving forward and not kind of stagnating in your opinion. What do you think was the single biggest storyline or just in general thing that happened this season with the offense? With the offense, um, you know, I have really pissed people off this year. <laughs> you don't say. I, you, tend to do, you tend to do that, don't you? That's <laughs> like the, I like it. I think the offense was great. <laughs> Man, I <laughs> Thank love you. Overall, what they do, overall, what they do offensively um, is great. I mean, it works. Like, I, I, people are like, he needs to hire an offensive coordinator. Oh, so I'm just like, geez. I mean, they scored a lot in a lot of games. And overall, I mean, when I watch the the 49ers and the Rams, they're doing the same shit, the same stuff. Like, it's like, it, you know, I'm going, we're going to run inside, outside zone. We're going to run bootlegs. We're going to, like, I get it. I, you know, at times, I think they were a little, maybe a little too um, reliant on, on the league. I think the one place I'd really like to see some development is like obvious passing downs. You know, and I hope that Lance has some input, you know, stuff like that would be, would yeah. be a plus, you know, for that. Uh, but overall, I love what they do offensively. And I'm looking at the Vikings, 49ers, Rams that, that run this offense. The only thing Louisville does differently is do it in the pistol, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, it, you say that that's the film that I would watch and break down and pull clips from and things like that. And 19 and 20 would be from the Rams, from the 49ers and uh, teams like all outside zone teams. And you see coach, coach Leopard's implementing it with the Falcons. Oh, you know, it it, 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 it works. It's, it's easy to teach. The Seahawks are doing it too. Like yeah. it's like, it's, it's, it is a fundamentally sound offense and you know, I think it took a while for Louisville to um, to find receivers that emerged and they still could do better at wide receiver. But overall, you know, I think obvious passing down. If I had to pick one place, obvious passing downs, it seems somewhat simplistic. Other than that, like I had never agreed with and don't care what the people are like, he needs to hire an offensive coordinator. They score 30-something points, ought to win. That's right. Right. I mean, it, it it does kind of help to have one singular guy in that chain of command. Like Lance Taylor said in his introductory press conference, it's going to help things be a lot more streamlined on that side of the ball. It'll help Satterfield kind of more so focus on the head coaching responsibilities so that not only have to do that and then talk to each of the individual position coaches and, and formulate kind of the offensive game plan. Now they just go straight to Lance and then Lance communicates that to Satterfield. It creates a much more streamlined model and I think I just told Jacob previously in our segment, I think Louisville's offense is going to be much better in 22. I think the the receiver room, when you take into account the people that left and the people that they're gaining in, I think it's going to be maybe not better. I won't say that yet. I think it's going to be a much more complete room. We're not going, going to go into this season thinking who's going to be the go-to guy because we have we've seen already – what some of these guys are capable of. Some guys are kind of wait and see because I know uh, D Wiggins had a, didn't have a had an eh, couple seasons in mind. He had a good 2019, especially in that game against Louisville. And then and then we're going to wait and see how Tyler Hutchinson adjusts from FCS to FBS. Obviously, the younger guys like Chris Bell and Devon Mortimer, how they're going to do in their freshman year. But I think 
from then the total offensive package for Louisville next year is going to be much better in 22. No, I, I would just like to see a handful of little things. I think Louisville was lowest in the power five on passing rate on first down. You know, that's, that's that like, that's like that's self, a great stat. Yeah. you know, self scout, you know, slightly less uh, predictable in, in, in a handful of, but we're talking about window dressing here. You yes. remember when, uh, when Derek character lost like 12 pounds and Rick was like, it's like throwing a deck chair off the queen Mary. You know, oh, like, dude. <laughs> oh, dude. I got stories. for So my, my brother-in-law was, uh, was an assistant on Rick Pitino's staff, a student manager, and his job was making sure Derek Character didn't eat everything in the room. So he had to follow Derek Character around everywhere he went. But Derek Character is like the karmic opposite of, uh, <laughs> uh, of um, oh, who was the skinny guy at UK that Billy Gillespie made him eat Pop-Tarts all the time? What was that guy's name? Oh, gosh. I know who you're talking about, but I can't think of his name. Is that Shigari Aline? Is that who you're talking about? No, 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 no. The really, really skinny. Ah, shame on me for not remembering. <laughs> But anyway, we're talking about throw it a little more on first down, you know, uh, fine tune, you know, Scott, I think every once in a while, I don't know, I would tell you this, I don't know what Scott's like overarching um, philosophy is uh, in terms of like when to go for it on fourth down versus when to punt, when they're going to kick it versus not, you know, things like that. I feel like he kind of does it by feel. So I don't never know, kind of know what's coming. Sometimes he catches people, obviously, sometimes he leaves Kentucky a minute to score before halftime. You know, and you're like, I don't know what you're doing. But overall, I'm talking about fine-tuning tiny little things, not blow this thing up and let someone else call plays. That just seems like foolishness to me. Yeah, it, right. it's more of a second set of eyes to see things from a new yeah, perspective. Like, eh, why don't you kick it this time? <laughs> yeah, you know, Scott, hey, Scott, remember the last time you ran that play? It didn't work. Let's not do it again. You know, we saw so many times where they would get to the line of scrimmage and literally run the same exact play that they just right, ran. I'll settle for one guy's like, throw it on first down. Like every third first down. But one of the statistics we pull, we talk about goal line and just you talk about window dressing. That's a great way of putting it. We will, I went back through today and looked at the ESPN box board and pulled every single goal line play that they ran this year. They ran 40 total goal line plays, according to what I could find on ESPN. 33 runs and seven passes. Okay, it's just being able to, I know that you want to run the football, Scott. But let's just maybe throw one or two more passes in there. Let's just try to mix it up a little bit. And I think that what I told Matt is as Malik Cunningham progresses as a quarterback, becomes better and, and hopefully better suited for the NFL, it's those areas like the goal line where you've got to be able to trust him a little bit more to make a throw on the two-yard line, the three-yard line, the four-yard line, instead of trying to run an outside zone play. I, I just think that there's more spaces where you can go from being basic Scott to just trying something a little bit different with a guy that's really good. I, I would have, even in goal line situations, I would have preferred, even if you kept the ratio of run past the same, more just explicit runs and not Malik having to read and run. Like, give it to a running back and have these giant guys just a little bit. Like, if they just run one straight ahead, just beat some asses into the end zone against Clemson, I feel like they – like. They could have. They, they, I think they would have broken through. It, it also bit them in the butt against uh, Duke, I believe. We ran an inside zone play, and Trevion Cooley clamped down on the ball when Malik yes. clearly wanted to pull it. And that's kind of where you get in that gray area. And next thing you know, we're not gaining any yards on that play. Well, and and we could use that touchdown. And I'm glad you brought that up. Like, that's one of those things where it's like we're going to get to the post game show and be like, 
how come the coaches don't do this? And really it was like, Willie, just give him the ball. Like the, the coaches do anything, you know, like we don't yeah. know what's called. Also, everyone thinks everything where Malik just does this is zone read. When there's a lot of those are just plain old inside zone. Yeah, he's, reading he's, reading the, yeah. he's reading the end right there. Yeah. And we don't know that. <laughs> so speaking on Malik, uh, what do you believe is the next progression that Malik needs to make in order to make that jump into the NFL? A lot of people, I mean, myself, I would say, you know, get a little bit more accurate on his deep balls. So I'm, I'm just curious as to what you no, I, I, I definitely, th- especially in an offense like this, you know, where when it's play action based and boot based and that sort of thing, deep balls like that's there. I mean, they win the NC state game. If he hits a couple deep balls, they win the wake forest game. If they hits a couple deep balls, it was, I mean, it's that simple. Uh, and, and I think we'll always be kind of in the dark about what's just straight up inside zone and what zone read, but being a little more, what you were just talking about reading it, this was a challenge with Lamar. You know, it was like, no, go ahead and give it to him. Now, Lamar does great in the NFL because he has J.K. Dobbins and, and professional offensive linemen. He's like, oh, yeah, I guess I should go ahead and give this. And the league is like, no, I'm going to make a play. But, you know, reading and actually reading when it's his responsibility to read and give a little bit more and trust running backs and trust his offensive line. I think those are the two big things. Just the time. I mean, I think about the Wake Forest game all the time. He has maybe one more throw in that game. They win that game. And, and that – I mean, in the NFL, the margins are even smaller. You know, you're going to have six games in a year where oh. one pro wins you that game. And even in that instance, guys aren't sitting there. There's not Tyler Harold a lot of times sitting six yards downfield wide open. You have to throw these guys open in the NFL. It's right. not just an open receiver. That's yeah. what they always talk about, the challenge in the NFL, making that jump as a quarterback. And, sure. you know, I, I hope Malik can make that jump, but that's just a tough one to make. I wouldn't be surprised to see him get a chance in a place like Baltimore, quite frankly. That's one of the most fun things about the NFL. I'll give the NFL this. In the last 10 years, it seems like everyone's kind of born again. Like the quarterback doesn't have to be 6'4". You know, yep. Russell Wilson and yep. Baker Mayfield and all. Uh, Kyler uh, Murray. Kyler, yeah, Kyler Murray. Like Kyler Murray. God, could you imagine like me and like uh, high school me, 1996. Kyler Murray plays baseball. Oh yeah, and, <laughs> and, even, and even to an extent, uh, your boy Josh Allen. Josh Allen. Josh Allen. Even, even he, even he displays some mobility. He did it in that uh, playoff game against the Chiefs, which that hey, was the same game. Speaking of mobility, how about Kenny Pickett, man? You want you want to talk about mobility? How about the fake slide? You pull that yeah. off, man. You got to place in the NFL, man. I have never That's- seen the NCAA act so quickly to adjust a rule Guys after like me- Kenny Pickett did the fake slide. <laughs> Guys that, like that, me I've never seen that play. they changed an entire football rule, and so like the cases from the NCAA that are like six, seven years old, but they're like, no, yeah. that we're done with that. Do you know how strong you have to be in your core muscles to fake sliding and go perpendicular to the ground and not fall down? Like that, 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 that's not for people with weak cores like myself. I can't. Yeah. That's not a move I can make. But it's I think, a move I. It's pretty cool. I think it's amazing that Pat Narduzzi is, is like, ah, screw it, I'm an offense guy now because like, that's like a defense dude. Like you know, yeah. they worked for D'Antonio. All, he's like, ah, we're gonna outscore everybody. It's fine. It's weird. Like that does not happen. And he is a funny dude. Can I? I'm gonna tell a story. You'll tell, love it. Tell a story. Let's, let's hear it. Yeah. At ACC Media Days, they set all these tables up, and uh, you know the coaches just go table to table to table all the time. And so ours every year, they set us up right by where the people walk in. And one, t- 
one time Narduzzi walks into the room where we all are. He's like right to my left. And he, I see him get his phone out of his pocket. He just stops. And it's a, it's, it arrests him, whoever it is. It's a player. He's like, he gets backed up like two steps behind me. And he calls, he goes, I'm going to cuss. <laughs> he goes, what the fuck did you do? <laughs> Classic. <laughs> Classic. And I was like, I mean, whoever that is, that dude is in trouble. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you, if you have God. to warn somebody that you're going to cuss, somebody is definitely in trouble. I'm going to cuss. That's great. Um, <laughs> back to the offense. Louisville outgained its opponents in eight games last season, eight out of the 13 total contests. Um, it, it seemed like majority of the time they, they, they couldn't hang on um, to the game late. They, they literally had everything that they needed to do um, from an offensive standpoint, from play calling standpoint. Um, in your opinion, what was the biggest factor when it came to not being able to close games? Uh, they didn't get pass rush you know, either designed or with, with, you know, the four in those instances where they didn't bring more pressure, uh, they just, they did not get home. And I think it's been the one place where Scott's done like true, like repentance, like our little guys don't get there. And, and, and <laughs> they've changed. I mean, Popeye is a different kind of guy. Tafik Thomas is a different kind of guy. He was a little bit of a different kind of guy, but some of these smaller defensive line we're like we're gonna be a one gap defense and be quick and be decisive and we'll it's they mark and they, they don't get there uh and there were just too many times where wake forest and virginia and clemson just had enough time to find somebody uh and that's like if if you get if you get home three more times last year you might be a nine win team like it's crazy how so what you're saying is we're this close to getting there we should be nine. <laughs> I mean, I joke, but I mean, it's true. We've, like I've said, it's not what the fans want to hear because at the end of the day, you have you have to put together wins and like a winning product. But like in reality, based on some of the stats we've already seen and kind of breaking things down, Louisville really was that close to having back to back eight nine win seasons. They really were. And it's insane to think about in retrospect because they go four and seven and six and seven, but like they legitimately could have back-to-back nine-win seasons and and heading into a season where they could be contending for the ACC championship. Well, and the agony of it is though is like they fixed the issues from last year. You know, Malik was a a fumble interception kind of machine, and he was far better this year, far better at both of those things, uh, and instead they just gave a bazillion passing yards uh, and look and part of that is not really their fault if you look at the numbers i mean wake forest threw the ball on everybody virginia threw the ball on yeah. everybody like it was, i mean bonkers numbers uh, a number of the passing offenses but then also clemson didn't and they did against louisville like you know there were teams that got right against louisville too so part of that is on them but in the end it's about results i mean there were multiple games where louisville had the lead and didn't hold it. And, and I'm, I would have been fine. I'm going to stick to my radio show rule. I'm not going to say I like Brian Brown, but like <laughs> I would have been, I would have been fine if they had made a change structurally, like at the top. Uh, but if it's personnel, if they feel like, Hey, we're going to change a little bit of what we do personnel wise and see if it gets us better results. Good. I mean, if, if the defense is like 16% better at just, Getting to the quarterback with maybe slightly fewer people, they're going to win like nine games next year. I, well, I, I do. Think, I do think it helps that. I'll oh, go ahead, Vince. 
I was I was just gonna say that Clemson game. It, I don't understand how somebody can turn on the film and not realize that. Oh, if I bring more than three people at DJ, he's one of the most inconsistent quarterbacks in the country. Yes, like, he does not like getting he's out of the pocket. Big. He doesn't like moving. Why? Why we sent three so much that game? I, I still sit here. Wonder why. I don't know that people can put words to it, but like the scene of him with like a, I guess like a pulled hamstring, just kind of limping into the end zone and not getting touched. People can be like, enough of this. Yeah. Yeah, they just need to send the house at that point. But kind of getting back to the offense, something we've kind of been accustomed to under Scott Satterfield, Satterfield since he got here, is that they have a abundance of big plays, whether that's throw the bomb to 2-2, seeing Javion, Javion Hawkins just streak down the field, and even guys from this season with all the amount of guys coming back, Tyler Harrell, Mari Huggins, Bruce, Travion Cooley, Jalen Mitchell, yada, yada, and some of the guys coming in. Do you think this is something we kind of see – continuously be a part of their offense or do you think maybe we kind of reached a point where they need to be not so reliant on the home run plays and maybe start to kind of pick and choose I hate to use this coaching action but what the defense gives them and maybe start to be a little bit more methodical because there were a couple times where Louisville was methodical and had success as opposed to just trying to go for the home run ball every time is that something do you think the offense should try and maybe transition towards maybe not so being reliant on those big plays? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think they're quote unquote, like reliant on the big plays. Because uh, especially if you look at the numbers, like the sink, there are two places where they made gigantic leaps as an offense. They turned the ball over far fewer times, especially. Mm-hmm. The yep. And allowed tackles for losses went from like 120th to like 19th. And so I don't, I would not characterize the offense as reliant on big plays. That shit was just there. Yeah. Like, I don't think they were relied on. And I think <laughs> they stayed ahead of the chains by far better this year than any of the first two years. I would say last year was peak reliant on big plays because he'd be like first and 10, second, 12 touchdown, which was, you know, totally not sustainable. But this yep. year, they did not go backwards uh, almost ever. Uh, I think I'm, the the biggest difference, the biggest change that I would hope for is just those situations where, say, you get a second down penalty or something like that. Uh, explicit, what Bill Connolly would call, you know, passing downs. Yeah. The third nine, you know I've got to throw it. I know I've got to throw it. That's the one hole in the offense to me. Uh, it, Route concepts, route combinations, uh, that sort of thing. Far, I feel a little too reliant on Malik being elusive as a runner or screens and that sort of thing. Like that part, drop back passing, so to speak, could get a little bit better. But overall, I just, again, I'll repeat myself. I've never understood the need to like, we need an offensive coordinator blow up. Man, they, they score a lot. Uh, and I'm glad that was your answer because that was – that was what Jacob and I's very first stat of this night was talking about. I love that, um, go, going back to their busted offensive drive rate, which was measures the percentage of their drives that either resulted in them going nowhere or them going backwards was 5.5%. They were fifth in the country in basically making sure they go forward. And that's, that's something. How crazy is that? Last year they would we talked about they would it would be second and fifteen every time, and you'd be like, "What'd you do on first down? You just went okay. backwards." I'm a, I, we'll see how many people really listen to this. Oh God, I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm afraid you're never oh. coming back if you find out. I'm afraid. I you might be right, or maybe, <laughs> or maybe they'll be done with you guys if no one hears it. But um, I 
you know, made a thing out of griping about running into the boundary on like second and long. But like, mm. it's, I under, like, that's the one place where Scott's like, I'm going to break tendency. Watch this. But like last year, that it, it really worked a lot. <laughs> and this is me confessing that like more times than not, like most defenses are like, well, they're not going to do that. And they did that. And it, I mean, it worked a lot. It's all about because a lot of the defenses, they'll call their strength to the passing to whatever the wide receiver's strength side is. And, you know, the offense isn't going to go what they like to call FSL formation to the sideline right? and put everything to the boundary. So by them flipping everything, I mean, that's an easy outside zone. All you got to do is just get that guard to go over and, and then the tackles out on a linebacker. And next thing you know, we're out for 60. No, it happened all the time, and, and like last year, and I would call it out when it didn't work, and then I wouldn't when it was really nice, so I'm enjoying that. <laughs> and this is me repenting to everybody. Like, that stuff really worked as part of – there's far more logic in what Louisville did offensively than, than we give them credit for, and I want to do better about that in 2022. So so you're not a big believer on the uh, the speed option to the boundary? Well, I don't know speed up. Well, no, the the, the option to the boundary that everybody was. Um, how different is the year? I'm dead serious. Have you ever thought about this? Like sliding doors. How different is the whole season if Hassan Hall just catches the speed option pitch and gets Ole Miss? <laughs> oh my god! Here. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna say this. Yes. This is not. This is nowhere near the comparison to that. But I, there's a play that kind of sticks out in my head against Alabama in 2018. If Trey Smith just catches the wheel route on third down, <laughs> he's streaking down the field, nope. and Louisville's going up seven nope. nothing on the first try. Oh, let's, let's let's go back. Let's go back. What if John Grenard just blasts two on the first drive of that game instead of slightly changing his, uh, you know, he kind of moves his hips a little bit and then breaks his foot. Yeah, you know, right. Tua wins the Heisman, or, you know, two is like a Heisman freaking candidate and John Grenard plays for Florida and Bobby's fine. Ugh, geez. Talk about the butterfly effect. We sound like Bill Steele. We're like, back in, <laughs> back in my day. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let's talk about the O-line a little bit. Uh, Cole Bentley, four-year starter leaves this year um i'm curious how do you believe uh brian hudson assuming he's going to be the starter filling that role how do you think the o-line will fare with a new quote-unquote captain coming in uh as the center i thought the o-line was was fantastic last oh, year good. you know i i truly uh, and i was worried you know because i i i liked which doesn't matter i like Dwayne ledford a lot uh, and I thought he did a great job, uh, but I thought Bicknell came in and kind of gave them a little bit of an edge. And I thought there were there were times last year where they were they were mean, and I was like, "This is good." That, that's uh, what I thought too. I thought I think if you watch Bick on the sidelines in comparison to how Led spoke to his guys, and Robbie Bell point, we were we watched every game, basically every game together, sitting next to each other, and he's like, "Watch Bick and think about how Led used to talk to us." Bick is out there ripping ass. Like Big he is an old, he's very much an old school coach. And in comparison to Coach Ledford, where Ledford's gonna be not buddy buddy, but more uh I'm not even gonna say, bro, come on, what are you doing? But he's just a little bit gentler with <laughs> how he's chewing somebody's ass. Yeah, Ledford is always more of like an inside out kind of motivator, right? Like that kind of guy, which is great. And and when Scott got here, they needed that. A lot of heart. Oh, yeah. But we did (laughs) better. I mean, first of all, not having six offensive linemen is nice. So I'm sure Bicknell enjoyed that. Uh, But then 
you know, he, he did not abandon that. And Scott, as a culture guy, is never going to let his coaches, like, abandon, you know, caring about your dudes and motivating them in a way that's not, like, literally violence or threatening, right? But but Bignell did kind of give them a little bit, it's all right to say the F word every once in a while, kind of thing to them. And sometimes they – I saw a difference. And so I don't – like, Cole Bentley's a good player and he's experienced, but I thought Brian Hudson's really good. I don't think they're going to miss a beat. I think the one that paid off the best out of all out of Led's departure, yep, Led's departure was Caleb Chandler. I think he needed that little bit of an edge. I mean, Caleb always had an edge to him as an offensive lineman, he but I, he seemed like he went out there pissed off every time. Totally agree. Like he's picturing yeah. Big's face out there as a as the zero tech or something. Yeah. I I don't know. The game in the Duke game, and I I no longer I tweeted the gif at the time, but there was one play where. Uh, I mean, it was a touchdown, so it doesn't even narrow it down at this point. But like, there was one point <laughs> where, like, they there were two Louisville offensive linemen with, with a Duke dude in between them, and like one basically like blasted the dude in the back, and then the other guy turned around and just, like knocked the guy out. And I was just like, "All right!" Like they was just like, "Not only are we going to score, we're going to embarrass you too." But, yeah, was, something something that kind of stands out is that on Malik's crazy ass touchdown run, not only does at the very same time he's kind of looking behind. And that dude is just kind of puffing and puffing. Someone comes, I think it might have been an offensive lineman, came in from like out of nowhere and blasts that dude. It might have been that dude or someone else. And like, that's exactly what this offensive line is. It's just that, like you said, the edge and that nasty streak. Because I mean, that's what you need in the trenches. That's exactly what you need. Well, they need isn't it more. Roman? Good. Wasn't it Roman Oban's son that got blasted on that play? If I'm not no. mistaken, no. I Roman Oban's son is the one that did the L's down. Okay, okay. Remember that? Yeah, his dad. <laughs> and then his dad tweeted out the cry, right. the crying gift afterward. Yeah. <laughs> Roman Oban is a great dude, by the way. That's great. I'm glad that. that oh happened. yeah. I love it. I, I realized, yeah. I realized the difference between Bick and Led back on that topic. Whenever I walked in one day. Late at night, I might have just got back from making a coffee run for somebody or something low level like that. And I saw Bick with his feet kicked up on the desk, chewing on a cigar. I'm like, Whoa, you are just way different than Dwayne Love for me. Oh, that's great. All right, we've got one more. One more question. We're going to wrap it up here. I've got screaming toddlers and babies in the background. My wife is texting me, telling me when I'm going to be coming out. So one more question here. What's the ceiling for the offense? If it makes you feel any better. Nine, six, four. Owen to bed at like 840 tonight. You'll get there. I'm jealous. Look, before before the baby came, I was getting the toddler in bed about 8 o'clock, and I was rocking and rolling. The baby came, and now the toddler's like, wait a second. Why does that baby get to stay up? This is two of it. But what's the – yeah, exactly. Yeah. What's the, what's the ceiling in 2022 for the offense? Matt has made the hot take that he thinks Malik is going to be either right there or in New York for the Heisman Trophy ceremony next year. Um, I, I think that if they are able to kind of take the next step as an offensive line, Trevion Cooley becomes the number one back, in my opinion. Tyler Harrell potentially becomes the number one kind of go-to guy. you got Marshawn Ford back. To, everything is kind of pointing towards Louisville finally getting there. What is the ceiling in Mark Ennis's eyes of Louisville's offense in 2022? You know, a more efficient version of this year. Um, you know, I, the Heisman thing, it's there's so much outside of your control. Like Malik could have yeah. hilariously good numbers. And if Louisville goes eight and four, he ain't going. Uh, so they would have to win more. But that 
that's not insane, especially because he's dual threat. Um, if they're like a nine win team, like I think Malik could be like first team all ACC though, which would be an accomplishment because there's going to be some good quarterback playing the ACC again next year. Uh, but with the way he runs the ball, I mean, I, I think being a nine ish win team and Malik first team all ACC is, is totally doable for this team. Yeah. Especially with how weak the schedule is perceived to be next year. I mean, that non-conference slate is nothing. I mean, they've what they have. At UCF, I mean, Gil- Dylan Gabriel's not there anymore. James Madison is USF the, the other one outside of Kentucky? And then that. And then, of course, the ACC is going to be slightly top-heavy. You're going to have Clemson should have a bounce back here. Florida State, we'll see what happens there. Wake Forest should still be really good. NC State, I think they might return a fair amount of guys. I'm, is Devin Leary coming back for another year? They're going to be good. No, I, 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 think, I think the schedules are going to be just about where it is right now next year. Yeah, no, I feel like Louisville will be better equipped to handle what should be a slightly better, like better ACC. But I say that in the context that they're gonna, the top is gonna be a lot better, whereas the bot, the bottom half of the ACC is just gonna remain like just there, just kind of existing. I mean, Dracovic's gonna be back for Boston College, but Pitt's True. not gonna have Kenny Pickett and, and some of those, and the and Whipple uh, is out. Well, Pitt did get Kidon Slovis from U- from USC, and he's like some sort of Heisman dark horse for whatever reason. So- I'm also anxious to see how Clemson does losing both their coordinators. I mean, that you saw what that, that will be. We all saw what that did for Coach Sat losing lead this past season. You know, and so I- I'm anxious to see how that how that. Works. And, and all of them, you know, internal hires. So it's like there's the familiarity, but but when it comes down to it, whoever it is has not called plays. We need six yards right now. Uh, like, you've never done it. Yeah, there's a difference, too. Venables would literally be out there running scout team quarterback against his defense. I guarantee you, whoever they fill that job with is not doing that. Oh, when yeah. Venables was ready in 2015 for, for stuff that Bobby had run in goal line at Western, yeah, like, that's that, that's not automatically replaced. You know, he's not able to download that onto the guy that replaces him. Yeah, that uh, you say that you say that. And I didn't even know that. But that makes me even (laughs) more aggravated. And Matt knows where I'm going with this with the last Mm -hmm. play of the Clemson game. I don't know if you do you know about that last play, Mark? No, I want to hear this, please. So the last play we ran against Clemson was the exact same play that Clemson won the national championship on with Deshaun Watson. The exact same play. Yeah, with that Hunter Renfro sprint out pass with the pick route on the outside. That's exactly what it was. And I was like, why on earth would we run, would you that, run that play against them? that team? They're familiar with that. Yeah, I'd say they're pretty familiar <laughs> with that one. <laughs> NFT for them. Right. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. It, it, hindsight's 2020, but, you know, maybe they thought it was going to work. But, anyways, thanks again, Mark. Go ahead and plug for us. At uh, Mark Ennis. Uh, and you can listen on the drive, 93 on the bill, three to six. Monday through Friday, and uh, post-game shows for football. Thank God not basketball anymore. It's all good, man. Enjoy this, guys. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.